coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. I came to believe while I was a cadet that, yeah, there were challenges being a woman, one of the first women at the Coast Guard Academy. But if I pulled myself back and looked at it objectively, a lot of people had a hard time depending on circumstances. And you could choose to let what those people said to you get to you, or you could choose to prove them wrong. Maybe it's the German in me, but I choose to prove them wrong and to show that I could make it there. And all it did when somebody would tell me, hey, you're a woman, it's going to be harder for you here. I would just say, hey, to myself, that's just another it's incentive for me to, to try harder and to persevere. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 158 of Passion Struck. Recently ranked by Apple as one of the top 10 alternative health podcasts in the world. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. If you're new to the show or you would just like to introduce this to family and friends, we now have episode starter packs, both on Spotify and on the Passion Struck website. And these are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into topics to give any new listener a great way to get acquainted to everything that we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. In case you missed my episodes from last week, they included my interview with Dr. Katie Milkman, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, co-director of the Behavioral Change for Good Initiative and host of the popular Charles Schwab's Behavioral Economics podcast, Choiceology. And she and I discuss all things behavioral change and the science behind how you go from where you are to where you want to be. I also interviewed Elise Michaels, who's a men's mental health coach, and we focus on the four pillars of men's peak performance. Please check them all out. And if you love any of those episodes or today's, we would so appreciate you forwarding this to your friends and family members, and also giving us a five-star rating and review. Those go such a long way to helping the popularity of the show. Now, let's talk about today's guest. Vice Admiral Sandy Stowes spent over 40 years serving in the U.S. Coast Guard, including 12 years at sea. Her career was filled with leadership lessons gleaned while breaking ice and breaking glass as the first woman to command an icebreaker on the Great Lakes and to lead a U.S. Armed Forces Service Academy. She finished her career as the first woman assigned as Deputy Commandant for Mission Support, directing one of the Coast Guard's largest enterprises. She has lectured widely on leadership and has been featured on c 
C-SPAN, and other media outlets. In 2012, Newsweek's The Daily Beast named Sandy to their list of 150 women who shake the world. She is the author of Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Unchartered Waters. In our interview, we discuss how she developed her drive through becoming a state champion track and field athlete, overcoming the odds to be one of the first females who ever graduated from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, as well as years later becoming its first female superintendent, her life lessons from 12 years at sea, the three Ps of power, what she learned from the Kung Fu Panda, the difference between a person of character and a leader of character, her advice on behavioral change, and so much more. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. So excited to welcome Vice Admiral Sandy Stowes to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Sandy. Well, thank you very much, John, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted for you to be here as well. And after reading your incredible book, and I'm going to just put it up here for the audience so that they can see it. I found we had a tremendous amount of similarities, and I wanted to start out with one. So you and I both entered track and field in unexpected ways. I was a long-distance runner, but if you would have asked my friends who went to elementary and middle school with me, they would have probably never told you that they thought I would be a long-distance runner. But I ended up, similar to you, winning the state championship. So what I wanted to ask is, what did you learn from track and field that has carried forward throughout your life as a life lesson? That's an interesting question, John, and no one's ever asked me that. I've, asked, I've been asked questions about how sports influence me, but not specifically track and field. So I'm going to answer it in my um, typical manner, which is the first thing that comes to my mind, because I think that's the most genuine way to answer. And when you asked me that, I thought about, oh, my gosh, running wind sprints up hills or upstairs in the high school. Our high school was like three or four levels. And our track coach would um, assign us a workout that was going up and down hills outside or going up and down the stairs. And it was brutally hard. And you had to do the hard work to be able to perform at the level required to beat the competition. And I think it was there <laughs> on the stairs, double timing up the stairs and down the stairs and up the stairs and down the stairs until your legs were like jello and it really hurt and it was really hard and it would have been easy to quit. And who's going to be looking at you? You're in the stairwell. Nobody else is watching you because your coach can't be everywhere. You're assigned to go and do this with a small group of people in your competitive area. And I was a, a thrower. I threw the shot put in discus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that was a huge lesson learned that it's painful to do the hard work repetitive hard work that looks like it's not getting you anywhere except up and down stairs, but it eventually gets you to stand in the winner's circle of a track and field event. Or if you want to translate that to life, it helps you to achieve the goals you set for yourself, even if you might not think you can get there. Yeah, I think that's tremendous advice. And I think there's so much I learned, you know, both from 
my high school experience and then running you know, Division One when I was at the Naval Academy. There's so many lessons you can learn from mental toughness to being a teammate to overcoming failure to overcoming your inner demons to establishing mental toughness. So I'm a huge advocate of sports and how they affect you long-term. Well, speaking of the Naval Academy, you passed up the opportunity to go to my alumnus to attend the Coast Guard Academy. And I actually knew a number of Coast Guard um, cadets that were of my class because I went to NAPS with them. And one thing that always struck me about the Coast Guard Academy, and if the listeners aren't familiar with this, is your attrition rate. My class probably had a 66% attrition rate, maybe a little bit higher than that. And that was really looked down upon at that time from the Naval Academy because they wanted a much higher one. And when I interviewed Vice Admiral Ted Carter, he told me it's now in the lower 90s, amazingly. But when you went and you graduated in the third group of females who went to the academy, there was a 50% attrition rate. And for the females, a 66% attrition rate. I can't even imagine going through the hazing I did would have been like for you and being in one of those first classes of women. So can you talk about that experience at all? Because to make it through and be one of 10 women who graduated from your class is sure an accomplishment. That's another good question. And I'll start by saying why I chose the Coast Guard Academy instead of the Naval Academy, because being born and raised in Ellicott City, Maryland, I had looked at the Naval Academy right next door in Annapolis and started through the nomination process, which is politically oriented. You've got to get a congressional nomination to get into the process for appointment at the Naval Academy and the other uh, DOD service academies. But the Coast Guard being um, uh, still part of the armed forces, but with a different title of law governing our, our um, governing us, our academy didn't have a congressional nomination process at Coast Guard. It was direct admit. So I applied to the Coast Guard Academy as a backup, but got accepted right away because it was a direct admit. And I thought, you know, I'm still slogging through this nomination process at the Naval Academy. I'm going to say yes to a college that wants me for what I know, not who I know. So it was merit-based, direct admission. Didn't matter if your mother knew a politician that could put a good word in for you with Senator Sarbanes, who was the senator I was applying to in, in my day. So that's why I chose the Coast Guard Academy, and I'm thankful I did. But yes, it was really hard being one of the first women. I was in the third class of women, and the attrition rate in your day, John, and my day was a lot higher. So our attrition rate was 50% overall for many, many years at Coast Guard Academy. Now it's only about 10%. I'm just guessing, so don't quote me on that. But as Ted Carter said about Naval Academy, Coast Guard Academy's retention rate is probably close to 90% right now. But when I was going through 50% retention for men and only about one third retention for women, so it was hard. And I think, though, that there's a lot more reasons that women left because it was hard for the men, too. So, yeah, there was one class of men, the class of 1979. <laughs> I came in in 70, 78. And those guys graduated a year later, the last class without women. And they were very proud of that for whatever reason. <laughs> we girls were still new and, and they would 
tell us you're not real girls if you're here at our academy. So there was some factors that made it hard with some of the attitudes of some of the men. But you know what? It wasn't all of them. And quite frankly, some of the women in the senior classes that were two classes ahead of us were harder on us than the men were because maybe they were trying to prove that they weren't being easy on the women coming in. But I always felt the women were harder on on us than the men were, which is kind of weird. (laughs) And then there were a lot of men who supported us. And there were a lot of men who had a hard time because they came from a different part of the country. Maybe they came from down south and they got picked on for their accent or something. So I came to believe while I was a cadet that, yeah, there were challenges being a woman, one of the first women at the Coast Guard Academy. But if I pulled myself back and looked at it objectively, a lot of people had a hard time depending on circumstances. And you could choose to let what those people said to you get to you, or you could choose to prove them wrong. Maybe it's the German in me, but I choose to prove them wrong and to show that I could make it there. And all it did when somebody would tell me, hey, you're a woman, it's gonna be harder for you here. I would just say, hey, to myself, that's just another incentive for me to try harder and to persevere. Like those steps going up in Mount Hebron High School for track training. I was not gonna give up just because somebody told me it was gonna be hard and it's harder for women and and maybe you won't make it. So I found it to be motivating to some extent, but yeah, we still had a high attrition rate. So you had to persevere. And when I saw people falling out, so to speak around me and quitting, they, and I don't mean quitting in a pejorative sense, but leaving the institution, not persevering, there were reasons for it. It made me desire even more intensely to stay because I didn't wanna get sucked into that a vortex of seeing other people around you quit. So you quit too. So I think there's a lot of mental engagement that a person can bring to adjust their circumstances, but it's easier said than done. And that's why I love podcasts like this, where you ask these questions, John, to help people like me give back a little by showing how I was able to do that and maybe help somebody else to persevere and hang in there through a tough time. Well, when I think back about those first three or four graduating classes of women at the academies, just some stellar examples jump out, such as Admiral Michelle Howard, my personal friend, uh, astronaut Wendy Lawrence. You also had astronaut Catherine Heyer, yourself. West Point had a Rhodes Scholar, actually, as their first graduate, Andrea Lee Holland. And then a few years behind you was Admiral Linda Fagan. And I was hoping if the audience isn't aware of who she is or why this is significant, why is Admiral Fagan going to have a tremendous impact on the Coast Guard in her next job? Hey, not just the Coast Guard, John. Admiral Linda Fagan will be the first of any of the armed forces in America to be the service chief for one of those armed forces. So she's going to be the Coast Guard Commandant coming up uh, in June. And she's going to be the first woman to hold that role to be the same thing as the CNO of the Navy or the chief of staff of the Army or Air Force so or Marine Corps, the Commonwealth Marine Corps. So she's going to have that top position. So she's not going to only influence the Coast Guard. She's going to be sitting in the Pentagon in a room called the tank, the decision room in the Pentagon, looking at global solutions to conflict and strife. And I'm really, really proud of her. Linda's a friend of mine. She's a year group 85 at the Coast Guard Academy. I was 82. I served with Linda and she's a rock star. She's going to do a great job 
and be a great role model. And the Coast Guard, I just have to give the Coast Guard so much credit because speaking, you know, back to me, since you're interviewing me, I was the first woman of any of the services to be service superintendent of one of the Armed Forces Service Academies. So the Coast Guard has led the way in women being first. And when we brought women into the Coast Guard back in 1976, when all the academies had to open their doors to women, our commandant said, hey, if we're going to open the doors to women at the academy, they're going to be able to serve anywhere on any ship we have. And at the time we had the 78 foot small, the Coast Guard cutters, small frigate sized ships that points in time were uh, armed with harpoon and sea whiz weapon systems. And we were able to serve as women on those front pointy end of the spear units, helicopters, airplanes, ships. We weren't excluded by combat exclusion laws which the other services quickly laid down to make sure that although women were forced by the Congress to go to the academies to be admitted, the services weren't going to let them serve in combat. And they put those exclusion laws in. We never had those exclusion laws. So I was able to serve equally with my male counterparts. Therefore, in my mind, didn't face nearly the discrimination or whatever you call it, adverse workplace environments that women might have experienced in the other services where they weren't given equal opportunity to serve. So to no great surprise, the men might have resented them or thought, hey, you know, you're not equal to us. You're not going out there serving on the front end. You're serving back and support jobs. So I really credit the Coast Guard and now Linda Fagan being the first, Admiral Linda Fagan, the first service chief of any of the armed forces is just awesome. Definitely a trailblazer. And I was going to hit you being the superintendent later on in the interview, but since you brought it up, when you got into this job, and for those who might not be familiar with this, superintendents typically serve, depending on the service academy, a three to four year term. So in the way that you are with flag ranks and promotions, you have to hit that cycle just right to get into that billet. And in your case, you didn't think it was going to be a reality because you were in a position, had just been extended for a year when out of the blue, you get a call that you've been selected to be the superintendent. Looking back when you graduated, did you ever in your wildest dreams think that you would become the superintendent? John, in my wildest dreams, I was hoping that I would graduate from the Coast Guard Academy and that I would graduate in four years, not five. I don't know about at the Naval Academy, but we had at the Coast Guard five-year person program where if you couldn't graduate in four years, you might be allowed another year to catch up and make your grades. (laughs) And I'm like, please don't let me be a five-year man in those days is what it was called. And uh, so that was what I was dreaming is is graduating. It was hard for me. And it wasn't hard necessarily because I was a woman. It was hard because I wasn't gifted academically, nor was I prepared with calculus in high school. (laughs) So that made it all the harder. And no way in the, I was a shy, less than fully confident young woman. And sports really helped me to develop my confidence. But yet my nature was shy and, and, and somewhat unconfident. So no, I was never going to be voted by my classmates, most likely to ever make admiral out of our class, nor was I ever going to have the self-confidence at that young age to think that I could ever rise to be an admiral. And you know what, John, nor was I interested in that because I just wanted to do a good job where I was planted, where I was assigned 
And I didn't want to be so bold or brazen as to project ahead to success that may or may not come because the pathway of life, the road of life, the journey is very bumpy. I wasn't going to presume I was going to make it to the top or that I was better than other people. I just tried to do the best job I could where I was at the time. And I think that's important because so many people do uh, get pushed to be looking beyond that and setting goals so far out and where are you going to be in 20 years? And to some extent that puts a lot of undue pressure on people they might not be ready for. So I was successful by doing the best job I could where I was and persevering. I never quit. I come up against resistance like those stairs at Mount Hebron High School and I would keep on going. And I love the jobs the Coast Guard gave me, the opportunities that were presented. I kept staying until I found myself in that position where you said I had made Admiral. I was director of the Coast Guard Reserve. And I love the reserve component of any of the services. And I've met a number of reservists from not just the Coast Guard, but other services. And I serve with all the reserve component chiefs, even though I'm an active duty officer, the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard have active duty officers who are in charge of their reserve component. And I serve with General Kelly in the Marine Corps as my peer reservist at the time. That was fun. So I was in a two-year job with the Coast Guard Reserve, and I'd done one year when the rotations for admirals come up every year. And so I was told, you're going to do your full two-year tour with the Coast Guard Reserve. And then a few weeks later, I got a call from my assignment officer, who's the vice commandant of the Coast Guard, telling me, hey, we've changed our minds. If something's come up, we're going to send you to the Coast Guard Academy as superintendent instead of staying in the reserve. I was speechless because (laughs) you're right. That's a four-year job for all the services. It's a four-year job at the Academy. And I'm like, the timing has to be exactly right. And it was just another lesson, John, on how, regardless of how competent and capable you are, a successful, humble leader needs to admit the role that luck, fate, or God's plan, however you choose it, plays in your success. So none of us are masters of our own fate. We'd like to think we are. And I talk a big talk about going internal to your internal locus of control to create your own fate. But a lot of your success depends on external forces over which you have no control. Your network, somebody putting in a good word for you, an opportunity falling from the sky that you don't even seize it in in this case. It just came to me and I was told I was going to the Coast Guard Academy. So I think it's important to recognize that only a, a part of your success has to do with how your own internal motivation, a lot of it has to do with factors you can't control. So that should keep us humble as we get more senior in rank. Do you have a topic like today's that you would like to see us cover? You can reach us at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. Keep your emails concise. Use a descriptive subject line. That keeps things easy for us. Reach out to us if there's a topic you're interested in learning about. There's something that maybe you're going through, any big decision that you're wrestling with, or perhaps you just want a new perspective on work, love, or life. Whatever's got you staying up at night, hit us up at Momentum Friday at passionstruck.com. We're here to help and we keep every email anonymous. Now, back to Passionstruck. For the listener who's out there and they don't understand what it means to be a flag, they can think of this as being a senior executive, kind of like a C-level in a Fortune 500 company. But in the military, only about 1% 
of people make it all the way from the lowest rank, which would be an ensign in the Navy or Coast Guard or a second lieutenant in the Air Force or Marine Corps or Army to a flag officer. And then once you start getting above that to your rank, it's about 0.05% if I have my math correct. So an amazing accomplishment. Sandy, I wanted to now take this and explore your book a bit more, but I wanted to do it by first asking you this question. We all face moments in life that define us. Can you tell me about a moment they shaped you and how? I'm going to go to the first thing that comes into my head again, because I've just been successful my entire career with wearing my heart on my sleeve and the first thing that comes to mind. So an inflection point in my career was I walked off the 210-foot cutter that I commanded in Kittery, Maine. That marked 12 years at sea for me, um, which is a long time by anybody's measurement, and uh, two commands at sea. And I went to a shore job after that. And then the time came for me to have my next command opportunity. In the military, you go back and forth from sea to shore or back and forth from command to staff. And so it came up for the next command opportunity. And the next logical thing for me would be to go back to sea again to command the Coast Guard's largest ship because the ship I'd come off, the 210-foot cutter in Kittery, Maine, was the one step below that. And I just thought there's something here, the defining moment in my life is I get ready to put in that um, assignment uh, request um, for where I wanted to be stationed. You can ask, you very seldom get what you ask for, but you're allowed <laughs> to ask the detailer, assignment officer, where for your first top choices. I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to go back to sea for another two-year tour. It's kind of more of the same. And I feel like I need another opportunity to achieve my full potential that I'm starting to to, to um, think about instead of just cruising along, no pun intended, on this uh, seagoing career. And I thought, what is it that I love about being at sea? Uh, I thought maybe it's the sunrises and the excitement of the mission, the adventure, all those things come to mind. And I'm like, something's missing out of that. That's all the tactical stuff back in my past. It's really in port when you're the captain of a ship and you're looking over the bridge wing, the top of the ship there, you can see on the pier, a new recruit from boot camp walking up in his full dress uniform, getting ready to report aboard his first unit ever, he or she, and they know they're supposed to salute one end of the boat, the ship. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, we at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers 
according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash passionstruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. The stern is where you're supposed to salute with the flag, but they forget in the time that they've only been in the Coast Guard six weeks, seven weeks getting their training. So they hesitantly salute the bow of the ship and they're yelled at the first time they come aboard. And so they're unconfident. And, and then two weeks later, you see that same recruit. And now the young person is wearing a uniform and they're pulling on a line and they're singing out with confidence. And they have transformed into this person who is capable of so much more than they were before they came into the Coast Guard. And I'm like, okay, my passion and my purpose is going to be to go and train the next generation of young leaders of character. And I put my name in the hat for commanding the Coast Guard's boot camp, which was not even in my specialty area. I was a, a sailor, cutterman. And I don't know where I got the job. It was the hardest thing I ever did to write a letter to my assignment officer saying, I do not want to screen for command of a ship, but please screen me for command of the boot camp. And I got that command and it transformed my life. From there, I did that job. And from there, I was able to lead the Coast Guard Reserve as an admiral. And then I led the Coast Guard Academy. So developing and training the enlisted workforce, the reserve workforce, and the officer workforce was my passion in the second half of my career and the real inflection point and moment of truth for me as to where I really needed to make an impact as I got more senior. That's pretty incredible. You got to do those three jobs back to back. What would the odds be? Probably very low. Well, I had a plan. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the book, you talk about character. What is the difference between a person of character and a leader of character? Now you're asking tricky questions, John. Oh my gosh. A leader of character to me is somebody who can analyze risks, weigh options, and make sound decisions that are good decisions, that are the right decisions for the individuals and the organization. And it's all about decision-making when it comes to leading with character. And the reason there's some character element to decision-making is because it takes moral courage to make a lot of these tough trade-off decisions that are only going to get to your level if they're really hard. So when I was a vice admiral on the Coast Guard, (laughs) there weren't any easy decisions coming my way. Ma'am, what should we serve for breakfast at this uh, conference we're having? No, I wasn't getting those. I was getting significant tough trade-off decisions that put the organization at risk potentially, or that required me to make trade-offs between programs where there were winners and losers. Understandably, you have to sometimes cut one to fund the other, and nobody wants to make those decisions. Or you've got to sit down and look somebody in the eyes and tell them they're not performing at the level expected. And I'm sorry, but I'm not going to recommend you for the next uh, promotion. People don't want to say that. I had that happen to me once. I was a senior officer 
and I had written a performance report on a subordinate who was also pretty senior. And I wrote the first part of the performance report and my supervisor had to sign off the second line. I did all the writing and all the marks and everything, the evaluations, but somebody else had to review it and sign off on it. And he said to me, the person reviewing it, couldn't you just soften this up a little bit and make the marks a little higher and make the words a little softer? And I'm like, respectfully, no. I mean, if I don't tell it like it is, the promotion board is going to look at this and say, well, Admiral Sandy Stowes thinks this person has got what it takes to move up. And I'm like, that's not my brand. My brand is wear your heart on your sleeve. You tell it as you see it. You're straightforward. You're fair and firm. And everybody knows that. And I'm not going to have a fitness report, an evaluation report signed by me that has made things squishy so that the person reading it doesn't have to feel like they didn't meet muster. No, I'm going to sit down and tell that person, you're a great person, but at this level, you're falling short in these areas. And therefore I'm not going to recommend you for the next level. And that's nothing personal about that. It's just all about performance. So you have to be honest with people. And I'm giving that as an example, because where I see the lack of moral courage and leaders of character, most often is they don't make those tough decisions to confront somebody they walk past these violations. The standard you walk past is a standard you accept, right? You can tell I have passion about this. So that's the difference between a leader of character and a person of character is can they with courage make the decisions they have to make that they're getting paid to make? I wanted to go into another topic you and I have in common. We are both introverts. I personally didn't realize I was even hiding it so much until I read a decade ago, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, which as I was reading it, I was like, oh my Lord. So for both of us coming up in the military in a very type A extrovert dominated culture, for me, then having to go into big four consulting and then the fortune 50, where everything was about group think, I remember having to pretend at times I was an extrovert to the point that People would think I was an extrovert, but when I would get home from work most days, I was just completely and utterly drained of all energy and emotion. And I was wondering, did you ever feel like that? And how were you able to work through it for someone who might be listening who themselves is an introvert? Thank you for the opportunity to validate what you experience and to share my experience that validates your experience. And I read Susan Cain's book, Quiet. I just happened to pick it up. And I'm trying to think of why I picked it up, but I picked it up just before I wrote my book. And it was another one of those life-changing moments for me because I had realized I was an introvert. I had understood that from, I don't know if the Myers-Briggs really tells you that or not. They kind of give you some hints but I didn't really realize that an introvert, the definition, the classic definition of an introvert is that you derive your energy from your downtime and the time with other people drains you. Whereas an extrovert, they're stressed and frustrated with their downtime and they want to be in that group. They want to go out. So my analogy is if you're the introvert and you go to the, the required banquet, you've got to go to as a, as a senior person at a function you're at, it's an evening function. You get through the banquet. You're like, oh, you just want to go home and melt. 
the extroverts like, where's the after party? Because <laughs> <laughs> they want to keep the energy going, whereas my energy has gone. So for all those who are introverts out there who've ever felt like that, that's okay. Your symptoms are normal for you. But what I would say is, just listen to me. People listening in would think, oh, she's, yeah, she's lying. She's an extrovert. I can tell by the way she's speaking. No, I became the person I needed to become to achieve the goals and to achieve the passions and purpose I set for myself in life. And to achieve those goals, become the person I wanted to become, I had to adapt to the circumstances. And that wasn't bad. That helped me to become the best leader I could be. So it was another test and it wasn't being untrue to myself by reaching in and finding ways to bring that energy forward and to not only endure, but thrive in those situations of party situations or groups where you had to be on with your energy. I feel that uh, I got the strength because of the passion I had to become my best, the best leader I could be. So it's definitely possible. It becomes something you learn to work with. I, I believe you probably could vouch for that, John. And as long as I can get my downtime, I'm okay. And I found that hard at times in my life to get that downtime, but you've got to make time for it or else you're going to fall into the exhaustion mode because you're not going to be able to recover and renew and refresh yourself. And that's important. Well, I agree. And I think over my career, what I learned the most from it is people are productive in different ways. And so you throw me into a groupthink environment, you are never going to get my best ideas because other people are going to shout over me, express their ideas. You'd be much better giving me assignment, letting me go off and think about it for a little bit, and then coming back once I've researched it and had time to digest it and then present it. And I think that's a key difference. So for me as a leader, I tried to look at the people who worked for me and adjust the way I worked with them based on their personality type and, and their strengths and weaknesses. And speaking of that, and Susan Kane, if you have not checked out her new book, Bittersweet, I had her on the podcast about a month ago, and she just has such a way of taking complex topics and making them digestible. So I'd highly encourage that for you or the audience. Well, in chapter four, you discuss one of the most important aspects of learning to lead is a commitment to lifelong learning. Hmm. Why is that so important? And what would your advice be for listeners? I've been asked in my career, how did you persevere to never quit? And that's a common question I get. But then of all people, my mother-in-law out of the blue one day, a couple of years ago, asked me, so Sandy, what motivated you <laughs> to stay in the Coast Guard? So that's a different question than why you didn't quit. Just persevering, you know, putting your head down and grinding along. What motivated you? And yeah, just plain old perseverance might exhaust you and wear you out, but the motivation came from the continuing education, the continuing opportunities, the lifelong learning the Coast Guard was giving me. The Coast Guard gave me little opportunities to go to one or two week trainings, like a mentor training course. They put me through graduate school at Kellogg Business School, completely covered by the, the Coast Guard. They sent me to the National War College. 
they encouraged me, my supervisors encouraged me to read. I had bosses give me books. I remember a boss of mine when I was a lieutenant gave me a copy of the One Minute Manager by Blanchard. Dang, trying to think of the first name. And that was an awesome book for me as a young leader. And so lifelong learning motivated me. And I, in turn, copied that example down and tried to use lifelong learning to motivate people under my command, try to encourage them to read. I always encourage people to read the classics of literature so they could derive their own leadership lessons instead of being prescribed them by a lot of the famous leadership books that are the seven ways you can do something or the three ways to succeed. That's prescribing ways that you can get ahead. That's, that's fine, but I'd rather derive leadership lessons. I find it more intellectually challenging to read a good piece of classic literature and look for the leadership lessons in that. Um, a book club is a great way to have those intellectual discussions where you're talking with other people who are interested in finding the leadership nuggets, like in, a, in an old novel that you come across, like the Kane Mutiny is one of my favorite ones for looking at leadership lessons. There's a sea bag full of them in there. <laughs> Out of that, can I ask you, what did Seaman Mike Wyrach teach you? It <laughs> coincides with that Kane so, Mutiny. Yeah. So I had uh, my first command, what John's talking about is my first command ever was a small icebreaker, 140 foot icebreaker on Lake Superior up in the Great Lakes. We broke ice for great big ore carriers coming across Lake Superior down the St. Mary's River. And I was a lieutenant. So in 03, I was about 29 years old and I had a crew of about 15 men, all men. And I had not that long ago, maybe two years earlier, read that book, The One Minute Manager, about empowering your people, looking for the good in people and that positive deck plate leadership where you get out and walk around and catch people doing something good. And so we had this helmsman and usually in a Navy or a Coast Guard ship, a maritime ship, the captain or the person in charge of running the watch, the ship, standing the duty, will direct all the movements of the ship, the engine order, telegraph, and the helm. So come right five degrees, come left. And working in the river all day, you had a master helmsman like Seaman Wyrook, like John mentioned. And I when I got comfortable with him after just a short time on the ship, I said, look, we're going to, we're a small crew here. We believe in trusting each other. Um, we've built that trust amongst each other. Seaman Wyrock has built, earned that trust by his um, mastery of being a helmsman, his experience and his demeanor. I'm going to let him steer the ship down the middle of the channel. And there's ranges, which your audience might not know what they are, but there's guidelines on how you can stay in the middle of the channel on these narrow waterways. They're put in by the Army Corps of Engineers. So um, believe me, you do not want to get out of them. <laughs> no, you don't. And it's easier for a good houseman to steer himself or herself, it was a him in this case, down those ranges and make the turn themselves instead of an officer of the deck trying to give a, a rudder command. When Seaman Wyrock, when I told him that, and the crew was kind of surprised because they're like, oh man, it's, our prior captains have never done that. I'm like, well, I'm going to empower Seaman Wyrock to steer this ship. Oh my gosh, the man stood taller. He was already about six foot two. And um, he was kind of a little bit different person after that. And the whole ship, the morale, you could see it. I mean, there was a, a better sense of trust. So it wasn't just Seaman Wyrock that, that 
got a kudo and got empowered that day. It was, hey, this captain. And I was the only woman, the first woman ever assigned to the ship. People were testing me and wondering what was it like to work for a woman. So I found that this was a way I could earn the trust of the crew by by trusting them. And, and in turn, they would trust me. So the morale on the ship was good. And people knew that I was going to be firm but fair. I was going to trust them to do their jobs, empower them when I could, and was willing to take the risk of looking at a little maybe unconventional way to do business that would help my people to achieve their full potential and not be held back by artificial constraints. I love that story. And I loved how throughout the entire book, you do storytelling. And I think it makes the whole flow of the book so much more digestible because you're able to refer to those and really understand and take the lessons internally because of your experiences. And one of the things I discovered, and you've already quoted a couple books, is that you're an avid reader like me. And one of my favorite authors is Gretchen Rubin, who was just on the podcast this week. And when I was interviewing her, I asked her, what is the most pinnacle thing for us to try to achieve in our life? And she said, it is the ultimate quest to know yourself. And through that lens, I wanted to ask you, what did you learn from reading Shakespeare and Sophocles about the importance of self-awareness? Oh my gosh. So you're playing right into my, a part of my book where I talk about when I was a cadet at the Coast Guard Academy, I took a class in humanities on the tragic hero in literature and Shakespeare plays frequently have a tragic hero, somebody who is prominent, a king often in his plays, and yet they fall in the end because of a tragic flaw. And it's always either absolutely hubris or related to hubris. So they can't see past the forest for the trees. They get caught up in the power and the struggle, and they fall victim to this hubris, which is thinking too much of themselves. I know some people don't understand what hubris means. It's the opposite of humility. And boy, did I learn from that. I'm like, wow, you got to be so careful because these plays, these ancient plays would show how a, uh, a hero would just keep on losing sight of reality. And the reader is like, hey, you know, seeing this, But the tragic hero themselves is the only one blind. And most people who are listening will have recognized a leader either in society or in their personal workplace who they've seen this in, somebody who gets more and more senior, more and more up in the chain of command, whatever that might be. And they start to lose track of reality and uh, they start to see themselves as taking privileges or treating people differently because they're so senior and they start to expect a different kind of treatment. And sometimes they do it all self-unaware. It's not like they're deliberately looking to become a toxic leader and they wake up one day and they are one and they're the only one who doesn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happened in these plays is the tragic hero often dies in these ancient plays. In more modern literature, you see a lot of takes on the ancient plays like Sophocles and and, um, Shakespeare. And it's just um, an old story made new with modern day heroes that fall. And um, it's a pattern that repeats over history. So people can avoid that and uh, 
I've got a little, can I talk about my three P's of power? In chapter six, which I think you're referring to, is that when you were talking about uh, the quote from Abraham Lincoln about how if you want to test a person's character, give them power? Right, exactly. And out of that, uh, you had a lesson, I think, if I'm correct, it was Lieutenant Dale Thompson taught you about these three P's of power. And I thought it was one of the, for me, one of my favorite chapters in the book. <laughs> Those lessons, that lesson resonates with a lot of people. So I was an ensign. So in 01, I was 22 years old, reporting to my first ship just out of the academy. I was still unconfident and I'm shy. And here I am on a great big icebreaker and we deployed to Antarctica. I've got lots of duties. I've got a a primary duty of qualifying as the underway officer of the deck. I've got collateral duties. And one day I I went to my boss, who was the operations officer, Lieutenant Dale Thompson. And I said to him, I'm having a hard time uh, motivating um, a person that I'm supervising to do his best work. And of course, once again, I was one of the only women on the ship of 220 people. There were about 20 of us women though, because the Coast Guard was trying to give a critical mass of women on the few ships that we had enough women to sail on to disperse women to. He said to me, Sandy, there are three kinds of power and you've got to learn them if you're going to succeed. There's personal power, professional power, and position power. And if you're going to succeed, you need to lean on the first two, the personal power and professional power, and use the third, the position power, only as a last resort. And so the personal power is how well you motivate people, your empathy, emotional intelligence, those kind of qualities that make you somebody that people can relate to. I almost said like, but I'm careful with that (laughs) word. So that there needs to be respect there for who you are. And then professional power. That's how you present yourself, what you know, how good you are at your job, how hard you work. What you wear, is your uniform or your clothing appropriate and squared away? And then there's the position power. That's what's on your rank, whether you're the vice president at a private sector company or an admiral on the Coast Guard or whatever your rank is. And a lot of people, as they get more senior, get back to that, that tragic hero in hubris, they'll start to lean more and more on the position power. They'll walk into a room and they're the admiral and everybody stands up or they're the vice president and everybody defers to them. But I tried, because of what Dale Thompson taught me my entire career, to master my personal and professional powers and to lead with them. And so every single day, I tried to build trust and earn respect, regardless of how senior I was, through my personal and professional power. And I'm not saying I succeeded. (laughs) You could ask some of the people who work for me and they would say, what? I tried really hard to lean on my personal and professional power. And you have to try hard because otherwise you will slip into the easy mode of just, Hey, I've made it to this rank. Now we're all busy. Just do what I say. But it takes a daily focus and effort to go back to the personal and professional power and, and pull the value out of that where you can really, what you want is people who follow you because they want to, not because they have to. If you use personal power and professional power, they'll follow you because they want to. If you rely on position power, they'll follow you because they have to. I call this people lead with their feet because people watch your actions far more than they 
listen to your words. If a company or an organization is doing well, it's easy to use your position to bark out directions. But when things get tough and you're in that foxhole, the people want to be with the person that they trust, feels that they have their back and is leading through their core values and inspiring that team to move forward. So I completely agree with you. Now, I can't jump from those three Ps without having you discuss what you learned from the Kung Fu Panda. (laughs) I've got a whole leadership little talk on the 10 leadership lessons from the Kung Fu Panda. And I know that's an old movie now, but when I was a superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy from 2011 to 15, I would ask the cadets, who knows the Kung Fu Panda movie? They'd mostly seen it. And there's a lot of leadership lessons in there. You've got this big fat panda bear He's the main character. His name is Poe, and he works in his father's noodle shop. Well, his father's a duck, so it's it's a cartoon animated film. And this panda dreams at night of becoming a kung fu warrior, which is ludicrous. He's big and fat. He's funny, and he's not serious. <laughs> he's the anti-kung fu warrior to what you'd think was a squared away, serious, focused warrior, a kung fu warrior to, to protect the village from this bad invader, this this big snow leopard, another um, animated character who's really what you'd think of as a kung fu warrior because he's got all the looks of a tough guy. And uh, so this panda is selected through the some kind of magic from heaven. The panda is too fat to really be effective. Nobody likes the panda. They all shun him. All the other Kung Fu trainees, the training master is exasperated with this Kung Fu warrior that he can't do anything with. He's too fat to train. He's not serious enough. So in the end, they're getting ready to have to defend the village against this invader. And they're like, okay, we've done our best to train this big fat panda to be the Kung Fu warrior. We we, we don't think it's going to work. We're going to go for the scroll, the dragon warrior scroll at the top of the palace. And they take it down with they go in ladders and they get this scroll and you're supposed to the Kung, only the Kung Fu warrior can look at it, but it's supposed to give that warrior the secret recipe for success against the enemy. And so Kung Fu Panda undoes the scroll. Everybody's watching with excitement and he screams and jumps back. And all it is, is a mirrored reflection, like mirrored paper, his own fat face is looking back at him. And everybody's mortified because they're not going to be able to defeat this enemy with this big fat panda who can't really do any Kung Fu. But, and there's a lot more to the story. You got to watch the movie. In the end, the, the enemy invades and the Kung Fu panda uses all the things that people had picked on him about. He was too fat. Well, when the, um, the enemy tried to electrocute him, instead of making him um, pass out on the ground and freeze, all it did was tickle him. And then being so fat, he just bounced on top of the bad guy and crushed him and the bad guy couldn't get up. And so all the things that were bad attributes that people had thought were substandard qualities ended up becoming the strengths that were needed to overcome this particular adversary. And so it was kind of um, a lesson in as a leader, you've got to look for the hidden qualities in your people and find a way to bring those out. And they might not look like what you've been told they should look like, They might look like weaknesses, but they could be secret strengths. And the other lesson is there is no secret ingredient in a scroll somewhere. It's within. So the panda in the end had to look within and believe in himself and be himself. 
And it gets back to that word from Gretchen Rubin when you asked her what she thought was a moment for her. And it was something about the passion. I think you've got to learn to believe in yourself and be yourself if you're going to be a real leader, because otherwise you can't lead other people. And so that's a long answer. I'm sorry if I took up too much time, but I encourage people to watch the Kung Fu Panda. There's a lot of life lessons and leadership lessons in that movie. So I think that is a great jumping off point to talk about mentorship. And in the book, you discuss how mentorship is an art, not a science. What are some of the misconceptions that you've identified about mentorship? Oh my goodness. So it's in my book and there's three mentoring myths <laughs> that I t- tell. And, and I'll be careful that I don't go into a long-winded answer again, because there is a lot to talk about, which I think is beautiful because leadership is a great big space. There's lots to discuss. Mentoring myths. The mentor has to be senior to you. The mentor doesn't. The mentor can be somebody junior. And I've got a great story about that that I won't go into, but I've had a number of junior people mentor me. There's all different kinds of ways to look at mentoring. And I know there's definitions, there's coaching, there's being an ally, there's mentoring, and there's a little nuances to each of those. But the idea being that people of different levels in an organization can help enrich each other forward and be there for each other in a meaningful way. So people who are senior need to look down to their more junior people for tidbits on how they can be better leaders. Because sometimes age diversity is, in my mind, the least respected or understood kind of diversity there is. It is so powerful because there's such a difference in the generations. So my military aides who served me when I was an admiral, I had maybe five or six of them they came from all walks of life, all different races, genders, and orientations and all that. But what I got out of them was none of that demographic stuff. It was their way of thinking as younger people. So mentors don't have to be senior to you. You can look a peer mentoring, look down for somebody who's more knowledgeable or got a better view of something. Second, mentors don't need to look like you. And you don't need to be, if you're um, just say a minority person, you don't need to find somebody else who looks just like you, who's a little senior to you to mentor you. In fact, why wouldn't you want to have somebody who looks exactly opposite of you to mentor you to open up your opportunities? So if you're just going to be mentored in the same small um, thread of whatever ethnic diversity you happen to be in, you're not going to have the richness of... um, somebody else's network that might be someone who looks different from you. The third mentoring myth is that mentors are going to carry you to the next to success. And I even heard at one of these great big mentoring sessions once some senior person at the table next to me was counseling the young people around him. We each had a mentoring table and I heard him say, all you need to do is find a a successful mentor senior to you and get in the elevator and ride it up with them. And I'm like, Oh my gosh how wrong and how disingenuous to those young people listening, hanging on this guy's every word. No, a mentor should be able to help a mentee to discover their power, their passion, their purpose, help them set goals, and then encourage them to achieve those goals, encourage them to keep persevering when they want to quit, find ways to help motivate them. The role of a mentor is not to make somebody successful or to promote somebody or get them the plum job. No, 
It's to help them to find their way to become the best they can be. Okay. And this is going to lead me to another question on this topic. And for the listeners who don't understand this, most of the armed services fall under the Secretary of Defense. But in the Coast Guard's case, they fall under the Secretary of Transportation. And you had, I guess, the honor, probably didn't feel like it when you were first being put into that job of working for basically the person who's the boss of your boss, (laughs) the commandant of. So what was it about Secretary of Transportation Sam Skinner that made him such an invaluable mentor for you? See, I'm wordless, speechless, struck struck speechless by thinking about Secretary Sam Skinner, my my lifetime mentor. So in nineteen in the 1980s and 90s, well, the Coast Guard started out in the Department of Treasury under our father, founding father, Alexander Hamilton, back during the Revenue Cutter Service. We went into transportation for a couple decades, and now we're in Homeland Security post 9-11. But when I was a young lieutenant, we were in transportation and I was working for Secretary Skinner and he believed in me. So here I am, a lowly lieutenant working for the service secretary. And he took me to every meeting he had. The only meetings he couldn't take me to were the cabinet meetings where he didn't have the say on who came in. And they were at the White House and only the principals could come into those meetings. But any meeting that he had a say in that he was running, I was often the only person allowed in on these personal one-on-one meetings where the CEO of a transportation um, a mode or, or whatever the case might've been, he took me up to uh, meet with senators and congressmen and see the ins and outs of government. And he wanted to do that so that he could set me up to teach me everything he could, empower me to the maximum so that I had the best opportunity to achieve my goals in life. He did it by empowering me and believing in me And nobody else until that time had done that to that degree where he would ask my opinion. You're riding in a car with a service secretary. You're only a lieutenant. You barely break squelch in the chain of command. And he turns to you and says, Sandy, what do you think about this issue that we're going to go talk about with Senator Kennedy? And you're like, oh. And so I'd give him my young person's perspective. (laughs) And in those days, that was very rare. We're talking 1989 here. Nowadays, it's become for 40, 35 years later, it's become more common for senior people to recognize the value of reaching down to the younger generation. Like I was kind of just saying during the mentoring talk we had to ask advice of a different generation to get a different perspective, but it was unheard of in those days. So Secretary Skinner earned my undying loyalty and respect by believing in me and empowering me. So we've been talking a lot about personal leadership journeys today. And yesterday I interviewed Dr. Katie Milkman. And if you're not familiar with Katie, she is a tenured professor at Wharton and she co-founded the Behavioral Change for Good initiative with Angela Duckworth, which is a great organization that they've enlisted the support of about 150 behavioral researchers and scientists across all the major universities, and they're collaborating instead of competing. But in our discussion, we were talking about her book, How to Change. And in it, she gave this startling number that was hard for me to to digest. She discovered that 40% of the fatalities that we have in the world today are preventable 
by doing behavioral change. And so as a leader like you have been and led many people, given them guidance, why do you think it's so difficult for people to change? Oh, that's a really insightful question. And I've never been asked that question because it is hard to change. I've been asked about why change is hard, but not in that context of a a person's behavior and their failure to accept evidence of the need to change. Because most people who smoke know that there's a lot of health risks associated with it. Most people who speed realize there's a consequence they might pay, but yet they refuse to change their behavior. Likewise, even if presented with a change that's gonna benefit an organization, people will choose the status quo because it's comfortable, it's not gonna surprise them, it's the devil they know, they'd rather accept the opportunity that might come that they don't understand yet. And I think it's human nature. If you had somebody who was a neuropsychologist on, they could give you a much better answer than I can. But I have seen, even though I'm not that that doctored person, I have seen by personal lifetime experience over 40 years that people would often rather stick with the, the known that's not that good than go for something glistening and better over the horizon that involves a journey with risks along the way. And I don't know what that stems from, but it is a human behavior that leaders need to understand because they might think as a leader, and I've thought this, wow, we're going to change this program. We're going to change the Coast Guard under Admiral Allen. It's going to be a much better place. Yeah, it's going to be hard to get there, but wow, look what's going to happen on the other side. There'd be 1% of the people that'll be with you, 1%. And even they might fall away if things don't work out exactly as they're supposed to. And they seldom do, right? It's trial and error, it's trial and error, it's trial and error as you're trying to work towards a a better outcome. So I do think that leaders need to understand that any change needs to be incredibly well communicated. You need to try to bring people on board. You need to show them where the value is, explain the risks. And then you need to do the hardest thing that requires moral courage you need to let them know, the team know. And if you're not with me, you need to find another job and leave this organization because we can't afford to have somebody who's undermining the effort behind the scenes. And in the government, that's what happens because you can't fire anybody. And that's what happened. I've seen it over and over again. You try to change something, employees that are there, that are unionized, that are, they're never going to support you and they're going to undermine you and just wait you out, right? You've you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep, I do. <laughs> so you have to try to, if you can't get people on your team, you've got to try to move them on and get them off your team so they can't stand in your way because they will stand in your way. And the one bad apple on the barrel will corrupt the entire barrel. And that's something we don't like to talk about much as leaders. We want to talk about the happy and focus on the positive and everybody's got some good in them. Well, I've <laughs> seen the other side of human nature in my 40 years of leading and you've got to make sure you don't let that one or 2% of people destroy an opportunity for everybody. And there's a lot uh, of that human nature element to overcome as a leader. Yeah. And, and I'll answer this just from my perspective. I've had two people on the podcast uh, who've talked about this. One is in an episode I just released today with uh, Dr. Michelle Seeger, who is a renowned uh, behavioral scientist at the University of Michigan. In her new book, The Joy Choice, She answers this question by saying that in society, we have been taught to start 
and stop behavioral change, but not to sustain it. And in a similar light, when I interviewed astronaut Wendy Lawrence, her whole topic was on, you've got to give yourself permission to dream the dream. And she said, where so many people get stuck is they stop taking continual action. And I think what both of them taught me is we can have these long-term aspirations, but that's not what gets you there, whether it's an eating habit you want to change or becoming an admiral. It's the micro choices that you make every single day through, as you've discussed, passion, perseverance. And to me, the other missing element of this is whether you call it commitment or intention, you've got to be intentional about what you're doing. And I think from a lot of what I've gathered, it's lacking that sustainability that prevents people from moving this forward. In the book, you talk a lot about core personal values to live by. Why do you think it's so important to have these in life? And what are some of yours? So personal core values are the foundation of your character. They're the cornerstones of who you are and how you're going to behave in a certain circumstance without the core values and the foundation they provide for your character, you're just going to blow with the wind. We've all seen leaders like that who don't seem to be grounded. They just go with whatever seems to be the popular culture at the time. I love this saying, you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. I love it because the core values ground you and that you know what you stand for. You're not going to fall for something that isn't the right way to do business or the right way to respond. So my personal core values that I learned in childhood are honesty and humility is one pair and hard work and perseverance is another pair. And they really are cornerstones for my foundation of my character. And I learned the honesty and humility from my parents, coaches, teachers when I was young. And I won't go into all that because we don't have much time. And the hard work and perseverance I learned working as a teenager on farm work and uh, having to sweat in the tobacco field and uh, be evaluated based on how fast I could uh, tie up bundles of tobacco. So those four core values kept me like an anchor to windward in a, in a tumultuous sea. And between those core values and then having um, a North Star to steer on, it was like a, I know it's a nautical analogy, but it works for me. Um allowing you to remain steady in tumultuous seas and make sound decisions and keep steering a steady course because you're grounded in your core values. So I can't, I, I usually talk when I start any kind of a leadership talk with uh, any kind of group, I usually start with core values because it's that important to me. If a reader was going to take one thing from your book, what would you hope that they took from it? I would hope that they would read my book and whatever their level is, because it is a book written to appeal and to have something for people from the entry level to the C-suite. I would hope that they would come away with a better understanding of how they can be the best leader they can be, how they can give back to help others become the best that they can be. So my book is all about giving back leadership lessons from my 40 years in uniform so that others can become the best they can be without having to go through every single little learning experience that I went through. So from the entry level to the C-suite, 
if people can read my book and become a better leader, the best leader they can be, and then pay it forward. And for those who are senior reading the book, mentor back down to somebody, bring somebody up behind you. For those who are junior reading the book, be motivated to say, hey, I could do it too. I've seen a model of who, how Admiral Stowe's did it. I can become the best I can be too. I have one final question for you. If you were giving the commencement speech at Kellogg, what advice would you give those MBA students who are entering the world today? So when I was at um, the Kellogg Business School at um, Northwestern University, it was all about management, not leadership. And they're two different things. As we know, there's a lot of ways people have made analogies, but managers manage things and leaders um, lead people. And there's a difference between how you deal with things and how the product line and how you deal with people who are on the product line. And so I think I would um, make sure that in my talk to the prospective graduates, I would make sure that they had a good understanding of the importance of the people on their product lines or wherever they were going to be in the leadership management world of um, business. And too often times we're looking at the bottom line, we're looking at the production rate, we're looking at the marginal cost curve, and we're not looking at the people. And then we have um, post-COVID this great resignation and we wonder why. There's a lot of reasons for that. I don't want to simplify it, but you're most important resource is your people. So as you go out there as new leaders into the world, make sure you don't lose track of that. Keep your humility. Don't let hubris bring you down as you get a little more senior and and, um, climb up the ladder a little bit. So it's all about people. It's all about others. It's all about being a servant leader whose focus first and foremost is to serve others. And yeah, you're always going to take care of yourself, but if you make it your mission to serve others, then your focus is always on the other person, not devolving into that self-centered inner focus that can be really destructive at times. It always keeps you focused on helping other people and pushing your your, um, vision outward instead of getting sucked into a tunnel vision of your own problems. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for spending your time with us. And for the listener who's out there, There are a lot of different leadership books out there. What I really loved about Sandy's book is how she tells these personal stories, gives examples, and makes it very digestible through the three P illustrations that she gives throughout the book. And I will put the book into the show notes, of course, but if someone is looking to get to know you better, where are some places that they can do that? Well, thanks for asking. And I've got a great website. I only say that because I have a great website designer, the same gal who designed the cover of my book, www.sandrastows, all one word.com. If you just search my name, it's the first thing that pops up on the internet. And if you go to that website, you can order my book. There's tabs for Amazon, tabs for local bookstores. I like to support independent bookstores. But also, please consider signing up for my mailing list because you can get onto my weekly mailing list and I, you can get on my mailing list and get my weekly blog. It's called leading with character. There's a new topic every week. It's like 500 words and you can keep um, up with motivational leadership thoughts just by signing up for my newsletter. So that's how you can get hold of me. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for being here. It was such a delight to have you on and a true honor for me. 
Thank you again. Thank you. You've asked some of the best questions I've ever had, and I hope that it's a great conversation for your listeners. Hey, y'all. Thank you for watching today's episode. And a huge thank you to Vice Admiral Sandy Stowes. And all things Sandy will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our web links if you buy any of the books from the guest on the show. The proceeds go to support the show and help make it free for our listeners. Videos are on YouTube at John R. Miles. Please go check it out and subscribe. Advertisers, deals, and discount codes are all in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. Please consider supporting those who support the show. I am John R. Miles at both Instagram and Twitter, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. And if you want to know how I manage to book all these amazing guests, it's because of my network. Build those relationships before you need them. Most of the guests on the show actually subscribe to and contribute their ideas on both guests and topics to the podcast. Come join us. You'll be in smart company. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast with my good friend and Naval Academy classmate, Stephen Conkley, who is a Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and repeat number one Amazon bestseller of over 20 thriller novels. I take a lot of liberty with the stuff that's done in the books. I don't try to Tom Clancy it to death with research. I do most of the research just through reading articles and Google. At any given moment, I'll have a, um, a bookmarked folder with a couple hundred articles that I've read on various topics. I voraciously devour anything that comes across my desk. The fee for this show is that you share it with your friends when you find something useful. If you know someone who needs pointers on leadership, definitely please share this episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give us is to share the show with those you care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear so that you can live what you listen. And we'll see you next time. Live life passion struck.